This podcast is brought to you by Guy Finley, the best-selling author of a new book entitled Relationship Magic, Waking Up Together. Please listen to podcast number 685, where Guy and Greg discuss a host of special insights into how to develop and work on building great relationships with everyone in your life. This book carries the keys to identifying self-limiting behaviors which might be keeping you from realizing the kind of loving, compassionate relationships with others, including with yourself. I hope you'll listen to podcast number 685 with Guy Finley, the author of the new book, Relationship Magic. For more information, please visit www.relationshipmagicbook.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Inside Personal Growth. Uh, this is Greg Voice and the host of Inside Personal Growth. And here it is, the middle part, almost Thanksgiving of uh, 2018. And I have Dr. Kenneth R. Peltier on with me again. Um, we did an interview recently um, about his book, Change Your Genes, Change Your Life. And Kenneth, I'm going to tell the folks to go back to podcast number 687 to listen to a fascinating interview. And in the process, as it frequently happens, I see other books that authors have written, and I invite them to come on the show. And this particular book is called Mind as Healer, Mind as Slayer. And the book actually is, from a standpoint of books go, quite old, but you know, oldies and goodies, uh, I love to uh, go back, uh, Kenneth, and actually review with um, many of my listeners because I think there's just such wisdom in so many of the many of the older books. So how are you doing this morning? Very well, and thank you for the kind compliment. <laughs> well, you're, you're welcome. And Kenneth is Dr. Peltier is joining us from San Francisco, where he lives. And let me let our listeners know about you. You obviously have a love for sailing because if you go to his website, it shows him out on a ship, but he's a clinical professor of medicine, Department of Medicine, Department of Family and Community Medicine, and Department of Psychiatry, the University of California School of Medicine at UCSF in San Francisco. At UCFS Med, he is the Director of Corporate Health Improvement Programs a collaborative research program between the CHIP and 15 Fortune 500 corporations, including Ford, Oracle, Prudential, Dow, Lockheed, Martin, NASA, PepsiCo, IBM, Cummings, Steel Chase, and the Mayo Clinic. And he's the chairman of the AAHA and the vice president of American Specialty Health, which is located here in San Diego. Uh, He's been recognized in numerous appearances on ABC World News, The Today Show, Good Morning America, CBS Evening News, 48 Hours, CNN, Fox, CBS, Sunday Morning, um, and the list goes on. Um, he is the author of the international best-selling book, which we're talking about today, called Mind as Healer, Mind as Slayer, Holistic Medicine, Healthy People in Unhealthy Places, uh, sound mind, sound body, and the best alternative medicine, stress fee for good, and new medicine, and change your genes, change your life, which is the most recent book that we just did uh, the interview on. Well, Kenneth, again, a pleasure to have you on. And as I was going through this book and preparing for this interview, um, what 
really struck at me was, wow, it, as much as things have changed, you know, as fast as they change, they almost seem to stay the same. Um, you know, and since writing the book in 77, a lot has changed in the field of psychoneuroimmunology. Um, what if you were to speed back or fast forward back and then look ahead, what have you learned about stress and our ability to cope with it in relation to our overall health? Uh, that's a great question. Thank you. A um, couple of thoughts. Uh, one is that when I first submitted that as a title for the book, this is now 1976 because the book was published in 1977. The publisher hated it, um, meaning Mind is Healer, Mind is Slayer. They just hated that title. And uh, it, the Mind is Slayer part was easy because I was and I still do uh, a form of Buddhist meditation. And so Mind is the Slayer of the Real was very known to me. But in the course of writing the book, trying to think about the positive side of stress, because there is a very positive side to stress. Uh, mind is healer popped into my mind. Anyway, when I told the publisher I wanted to call it that, they hated it. And I actually got to the point of saying, look, I'll give you back your uh, advance if you just let me keep the title. <laughs> and finally, they they uh, reneged and they agreed to the title. So I think that's an interesting sign of the times. The other is that in 1992, which I think was the 25th anniversary of the book, um, the publisher, which is Delacorte Delta, um, wanted to publish a 25th anniversary edition. They sent it out for review and they asked various colleagues, should we have, you know, Ken go in and update this? Should we do a new preface? You know, what kind of what should we do? And the overwhelming response was, leave it as it is and write a new preface. So I wrote a new preface and the bit of a long-winded answer to your question. But in writing that preface, all of the neurophysiology, the biochemistry, and it was really before the genetics revolution. So I wasn't even aware of that in 1992, um, had advanced the understanding of the biochemistry, the linkages between mental activity, mental imagery, thoughts and emotions, and our own body chemistry and ultimate our, our physical well-being was really more sophisticated in being mapped out 25 years later. But what had not changed and really struck me and has not changed to the present day was what can we do? So the techniques, the meditation techniques, autogenic training, Jacobson's progressive relaxation, visualization, all the things that I talked about in 1977 have not changed. Those are still the same uh, personal, uh, practical ways in which people can re regulate this mind-body system. So some things have changed, the science has advanced, but the actual doing has remained the same probably for thousands of years. Yeah, and it's the whole mind, body, spirit element that we're talking about. And I think, you know, when you look at emotional health, physical health, spiritual health, um, it really is wrapped around that. And you were discussing um, the psychosocial stress in our culture in the book and that it has this really dangerous cumulative effect. And the only thing I can think of, Kenneth, 
is as the society has sped up, and I don't think I'm imagining this, um, we live in such a fast-paced society as a result of not just technology, but changing environments and, and the, the government's changing and all the things that we deal with and change. And, you know, you know this better than anybody, human beings don't actually do really well with change. Um, there's a lot of resistance. So what is the effect of these outside stressors that you talk, the psychosocial stressors on our health? They're profound. Um, uh, there was, I think about, must have been 20 or maybe 25 years ago, uh, the state of California, under, the, under Jerry Brown when he was the first governor, <laughs> the first time he was governor of California, had a uh, California Wellness Council, and I was a member of that and got to work with him. Uh, and he had a Department of Prevention uh, under the state of California. And under that Department of Prevention, my colleagues and I at the University of California School of Medicine created a program that was disseminated throughout the state, and it was called Friends Can Be Good Medicine. Friends Can Be Good Medicine. And it looked at the fact that we know that people who are connected to family, to friends, to church, to, uh, you know, other kinds of groups have much better health, longer life expectancy, fewer uh, stressful onset ranging from minor colds to heart attacks, and then people who are isolated, alone, and depressed. So our psychosocial environment gets uh, effect inside of us. And uh, th this is more deep. We can get a little more detail later, but there really are two basic kinds of stress. And the very destructive type two stress is really countered by having friends, having connections, having a healthy physical and psychosocial environment. And we're beginning to appreciate that now. The, the phraseology in you know 2018 is social determinants of health, but it's still 25 years later, friends can be good medicine. Yeah, it's, it is certainly, you know, when you look all the way back to the teachings of Buddha and the meditation teachings that, that I've been practicing and I've been working on, and I think many of our listeners do, um, there's ageless wisdom in this, yet there's new science relative to the effects because we've been able to study the body better. And um, you state that there's been a growth of physicians treating patients from this mind, body, spirit kind of focus. And we've seen that. We've seen the evolution of physicians. We've seen the evolution of doctors wanting to treat this and say, well, it's alternative care. What are the benefits in your estimation from seeing for our listeners a professional who can understand the interrelated elements of treating patients from this perspective. And, and why don't I just use one of the many type of physicians that has evolved, it seems pretty recent, which is a functional medicine doctor or uh, somebody like that who's, who's treating all the elements, uh, not just saying, hey, I'm coming into the GP to see you about a cold. Right. It is uh, right now today. It's really increasingly easy to find uh, an integrative uh, physician, 
holistic care, integrated care, uh, and the functional medicine, the Society for Functional Medicine has trained and has, is a great example. Uh, the other is that the Center for Integrative Medicine at the University of Arizona, which was uh, the Center for Integrative Medicine, was started by my longtime colleague and good friend, Andy Weil, and they have trained about 16 or 1,700 physicians in integrative medicine, and it's a two-year program in which this is post-residency. They're out in practice. They go back into the program for two years. They learn about Ayurveda, Chinese medicine, uh, chiropractic, herbal, acupuncture, mind-body. So they learn enough about each of these disciplines so that they can then integrate that in a clinic or a hospital or make uh, appropriate referrals. So it's now entirely possible. I mean, my my best advice to someone is if your doctor doesn't understand these things, find another doctor. It's really that simple. Um, the practitioners are all over the United States, every city, virtually every state. You can find good quality, functional, integrative medicine providers. And, and I'm just talking about MDs. I'm talking about uh, PAs, uh, NPs, chiropractors, uh, osteopaths. Um, there are a host of clinical training disciplines that all use this kind of approach. And the last thing I would say is, and I think it's important to realize, integrative medicine is evidence-based. So whether something is thought to be conventional or alternative is simply nonsense. If you ask what's best for a person, then you cross those boundaries. If you ask, as a person has bypass surgery and they're recovering from the pain, is acupuncture good? Yes. Do they want to stabilize their diet so that their heart disease is not going to recur and they're going to enter into a particular kind of heart-saving diet? The answer is yes. So the, the combination of conventional alternative medicine on an evidence base is what constitutes modern integrative medicine, and it's unequivocally the wave of the future. Yeah, and as, as we talked about in our last program, there's so many of these tests available as well. You had mentioned Thorne, a place where people are going to get the test, and, and these physicians will use these type of tests and the and the testing has gotten so good um, that they can tell so much about how your organs are working. That brings me kind of to the next question. Um, in the book, you say that one of the most negative results of excessive levels of stress is the effect on our immune system. Um, so what happens to our immune system during stress and what can our listeners do to combat against the effects of stress on our immune system? And an immune system, you know, some people out there may say, well, that's only a cold or it's the flu, uh, but it goes much deeper than that, right? Yes, it does. Um, let me just take a step back and just briefly, there are two kinds of stress, type one, type two, and I talk about this in the book. The type one stress is when stress is immediate identifiable and resolvable. So it's when you step off the curb, a car honks its, honks its horn, you jump back onto the curb and you save your life. Now that form of stress is unpleasant feeling, but it's very positive. If you didn't do that, you'd get run over. Um, so you identify the stress, it is immediate and you resolve it and your body goes through a period of red alert, fight, flight, response, 
to your heart rate, blood pressure, electrical activity in the brain, hormones, biochemistry, all are elevated. When it's over, you go below baseline, and then you come back to your normal um, everyday control. Uh, now, th that kind of stress is fine. In fact, we owe our existence as a species to having that. So that's not bad. The second type two stress occurs under different circumstances. It occurs when the stress is not immediate, not identifiable, and not necessarily resolvable. So if you think about it, most of our stress day in and day out is of the type two uh, stress. So it's concerns about finance, uh, conflict with a, a partner, business concerns, uh, whatever it is, the difference is that when we perceive something to be threatening, if a financial concern is perceived to be threatening, our bodies respond as though to, that is a real physical threat, as though a, um, a saber-toothed tiger is attacking us. So our blood pressure, heart rate, biochemistry elevates. The immune system is suppressed because the last thing the body wants to do is to deal with an immune issue. It wants to basically prepare to either get into combat or run away and save your life. So immunity is suppressed. The, uh, the problem is that because the source of stress is not immediate, not identifiable or resolvable, this normal response goes on for a protracted period of time. So these normal responses, elevated heart rate, over time becomes tachycardia. Uh, elevated blood pressure becomes hypertension. Suppressed immunity becomes an autoimmune disorder. So all of these normal responses, if they go on too long, become either symptoms and conditions of themselves or lead to more severe symptoms. So with that model in mind, um, uh, what a person needs to do is to break up this type 2 response into type 1 segments. And, every, and, and the trick to that is recognizing when the type 2 response is going on for too long. So we all have normal responses that tell us we're over the edge, we're under a lot of stress. So a common one is cold, clammy hands. Now, the cold hands are due to the fact that when we're under stress, our peripheral blood vessels contract so that if we're cut or bitten in combat, we don't bleed. Uh, we have uh, sweating or hyperhidrosis because we want to purge the body of excess water to lighten ourselves to prepare for combat or to flee. So cold, clammy hands are a common symptom of stress. Tight neck, dry throat, racing thoughts, elevated heart rate, elevated respiration. All of these things say, hey, you're under stress. At that point, what you need to do is having practiced, and that's the critical thing, and we can talk about that if you like. We need to have practiced a stress management technique. When we know that we're under excessive stress, engage that stress management technique immediately. Drop mm -hmm. down from the type two response into this cycle of type one. Drop down, come back, drop down, come back, and you cycle in and out of a performance zone in which you've got enough stress to be alert, get things done, be very effective, and yet not enough to impair your health. So that, again, it's a bit of a long-winded answer, but it's a way, I think, for everyone to understand the good and bad and what to do when you have the bad stress to turn it into a good response. This podcast is brought to you by Jeffrey Gittimer, the author of a new book entitled Truthful Living 
please listen to podcast number 688, where Greg and Jeffrey discuss the 23 lessons that he writes about from the recently discovered works of Napoleon Hill that are over 100 years old. These lessons such as success is up to you and finish what you start are all from the original writing for Napoleon Hill with commentary by Jeffrey. If you want to read a book that will certainly help you change the course of your life, pick up a copy of Truthful Living by Jeffrey Gittimer and listen to Greg's engaging interview with Jeffrey on podcast number 688. If you want more information about Jeffrey and Truthful Living, please visit www.gitomer.com or visit the Napoleon Hill Foundation website at www.naphill.org. Thanks for listening. Well, I mean, it's an important answer, and it does require some explanation. And I think many of my listeners know, you know, just a, I think it's a, it's a personal story, but it's a good story, and and many of them know. But I remind them, you know, as I've gone through my years of running businesses and evolving businesses and being an entrepreneur, I got to a point, Ken, where I had such bad anxiety attacks, and I ended up going to Scripps La Jolla. Um, to get biofeedback as a result of that. And, you know, those anxiety attacks, as you know, are real psychosomatic and physical in nature, racing heart, you know, like you said, the clammy palms, um, sweating, you feel like you're having a heart attack, uh, you don't like being in uh, closed places. Um, there's a lot of things that go along with that. And, and that led me to a regular practice of meditation because biofeedback, while it's really nice, and I don't even know if they're doing it anymore, it's kind of inconvenient. Uh, you have to go someplace and somebody puts little electrodes on your head. Um, yeah. So one of the main things I would say would be the deep breathing. Uh, we forget about our breath. And if there's anyone out there listening, you know, doing the alternate nostril breathing is one great way to slow your heart down and get back in rhythm again and, and not have this, you know, cause you can go into tachycardia, right? Yes. Yeah. So let's talk about this. Um, I don't think there's a person listening to this show today. That's not aware of personality types. They got beat up by the media. Uh, oh, you're a type A or you're a type B. Um, and the correlation to type A and stress. So the most typical comment is that you're a type A. Everyone always said I was a type A. What do you need to know about personality types as it relates to the correlation and stress? And what are people calling it today? It seems like that whole type A, type B thing I haven't heard in a while, but maybe it's something new now. Well, actually type A, is really a concept developed in the uh, early 80s, late 70s, early 80s, and you're right, it really is uh, rather passe. And but the interpretation of it is is and was wrong. It's still used on occasion, but you just don't see it as an, a common vocabulary or descriptor anymore. The original characteristic was not time driven; it was hostility that is time driven. So the operative variable, so if someone is busy and active like you've just described yourself and, and, uh, and, and congratulations on finding a way out of it, biofeedback is effective and it still is practice and it's really quite a good therapeutic intervention. Um, oh, good. I'm glad to hear that because I thought maybe they'd gotten rid of all those machines. <laughs> no, it's still, it's still used. Uh, it, it's okay. a good way to 
practice and then, you know, to wean yourself from dependence on the instruments, which, as you point out rightfully, is, is what you want to do to a form of stress management and meditation and abdominal breathing. But the, uh, the type A was really mistakenly uh, time-pressured activity. That's not it. It really is hostility. It's when uh, everything you win someone else has to lose. When someone's winning, you're losing. And it's that kind of hostile, one-up, one-down, seesaw look at the world. That kind of hostility is very negative, and it is conducive to heart disease, and that is still true. Uh, it may not be called uh, heart disease anymore, uh, but the uh, dynamic of that kind of unrelenting hostility is still true because when you greet, when you look at the world with hostility, I'm going to conquer, I'm going to win, I'm going to make someone suffer, I'm going to get revenge, all of these negative thoughts, your heart rate, your blood pressure, your blood chemistry, you are in that perpetual type 2 stress response. Type 2 stress response is catabolic. So you are literally burning your body, incinerating your biochemistry to prepare for combat. That constant catabolic activity is inherently destructive. And when you asked earlier about the immune response, that compromises your immunity. So you're going to be susceptible to colds and flus, but more importantly, you're going to be susceptible, more likely to develop cancerous cells. So our bodies are constantly generating abnormal cancerous cells constantly. And our immune system surveils that, gobbles them up, rids, them, uh, rids our body of those, and there is no problem. But when the immune system is compromised under stress, under environmental pressure, under poor nutrition, lack of physical activity, the immune system does not surveil the cancer cells and they can grow and multiply out of control. So the, this protracted stress, protracted hostility which was the functional part of type A, still exists. It's just simply not referred to as type A any longer. That's, yeah, and, and, you know, I think your comment there about protracted hostility, um, you look at what is going on in society today and you look at this big desire to win. And it's not that I don't believe that people shouldn't have goals. I think goals are good. But goals at the outcome of uh, diminishing your health are and being that driven, um, in my estimation, are not healthy. I think there's other ways that the universe guides and directs us, and the people need to be open to the whole spiritual element. And you have a great quote in your book from Socrates, and it says, "There is no illness if the body apart from the if the body is apart from the mind." Um, is it, did I say that right? There is no, maybe I typed it wrong. Uh, it, there is no illness if the body apart from the mind. Um, can you provide our listeners with techniques and tips that they can initiate to help them control out of this monkey mind situation? Because usually it is this monkey mind that's constantly feeding us what the ego is saying, you know, you're not good enough, you need to do more, uh, you, you could be better. Um, so it's this constant thing, or you forgot this, or you need to do that, um, that really keeps us in this wound up state. What kind of tips do you have for our listeners? That's a good question, because my earliest research in this area was with um, adept meditators. 
And the purpose was at least, this again, really 1970s, was to demonstrate that people could influence the involuntary nervous system. Uh, in the early 70s, if you looked at textbooks, you had the voluntary and involuntary nervous system. They ran like parallel railroad tracks, and they were never going to intersect. And something about that bothered me uh, because I knew that you can voluntarily stop your breathing, but when oxygen levels drop, you involuntarily start to breathe. Uh, you can keep your eyes open for quite a long period of time, but at some point they dry, you have to lubricate, you blink your eyes, and that's an involuntary reflex. So somehow they were connected. And in my lab at, at the University of California, I began to study adept meditators. Uh, and these were individuals who could self-inflict horrific wounds. So uh, they would skewer themselves with sharpening bicycle spokes or knitting needles. Uh, people would put a bicycle spoke completely through their bicep or their forearm. And when they were meditating, it was very clear that they were not under stress. It, they looked as though they were on vacation, on a beach, and having just a great time. When they weren't meditating, they reacted to uh, pain, to stress, exactly like we do. So I began asking, asking them, what do you do? How are you doing this? And all of them, and again, this is in response to your readers being concerned about what can I, or your listeners, what can I do? And there was really no common element Anything that they had done. One man learned his ability by, he was in a concentration camp in Nazi Germany and was being tortured. And when he was being tortured, he went into a, uh, an out-of-body experience, had a visionary experience, came back, and when he did, he found that he could control bleeding and pain. Another man had been a karate expert. Another individual had trained in uh, Tibetan Buddhist studies. But what I did learn, and I think this is useful for everyone, is that all of us have something we do to try to manage stress. We think of a prayer, a word, a color, a thought, a visual image, a smell, a sound, a piece of music. So all of us have something we do when we're under stress that alleviates that stress. So my advice is, Take what we know, what we already do, and find a discipline to enhance that. So if it's breathing, then there's Zazen breathing. If it's color, there are a host of color therapies. If it's imagery, there's a, there's a tremendous discipline on guided imagery. Learn how to really use your internal imagery under conditions of stress. The, the most important thing is to take what you already do Practice it when you're not under stress so you can use it effectively when you are. But the, the critical variable is to learn and, and use it with practice. Uh, if someone said to you, I want to learn to play the piano, you would say, yes, of course, you need to take lessons. And they'd say, well, yeah, of course. But I am surprised how many people, when you say you need to learn a stress management technique, they look at you like, well, why? Uh, and, and the point right. is that we're learning to play something infinitely more complex than a piano, which is the mind-body system. That takes discipline, takes practice, and we all can do it. Well, and there's plenty of practitioners out there that want to help people, whether it's through uh, taking meditation classes or going to self-realization fellowship, or uh, there's plenty of spiritual places you can go for free. Uh, there's also lots of places uh, 
that you can go and do yoga, which will include meditation in it. So one of the things you mentioned was this visualization. And it's always interested me. And um, I'm not saying I've been a bad visualizer, but I haven't been probably the best. And I think it's probably just the way my mind works. Um, so if I look at myself, I think my stimuli are a little bit different than that. But you mentioned this autogenic meditation is this advanced stage of meditation that involves visualization. And you had mentioned it toward the end of the last comment. How would you tell the listeners to learn how to better visualize as a means of reducing stress? It's not a matter of visualizing. It's a matter of getting vivid pictures um, in the mind, which has been a little more challenging for me. Are there any techniques that you can help people with with that? Yes, there are. Uh, so now I think the first barrier to most people using visual imagery is, again, you, you correctly pointed out, which is a preconception or a logical thought process that gets in the way. So let me, let me use an example. Right now, if your listeners close their eyes and then open them when they can tell me the number of windows in their living room, the number of windows in your living room, I have not found anyone that cannot do that. And I asked them, how did you do it? And they say, well, I saw my living room and I counted the windows. That's it. Your ability to visualize does not have to be any more vivid than seeing your living room, counting the windows to be effective. So don't get in your own way when you think it should be 3D, quadraphonic sound, you know, perfect visualization. That gets in the way. That's an expectation. It has nothing to do with your ability to visualize something uh -huh. that can really okay. Uh, that's, and then the that's other really, is that's really oh, very your... helpful, by the way. Oh, that's, good. I, I was going to comment that that's really very helpful because I think, as you said, people have an expectation of visualization. You're supposed to see all these crazy colors and things are supposed to happen, and it doesn't always happen that way. So that's important. That, that's critical. That's the first element. Again, if you can, I was in the Soviet Union one time and doing a lecture, and I used that with about four or 500 Russian scientists, and suddenly they all started laughing. Now, if you've ever given a lecture in Russia, you know, nobody laughs. And they all started laughing, and I, and my, and I said to my translator, what, what's going on? And, and he said, well, they're laughing because we live in state housing, and we all have one window. <laughs> so, and, <laughs> and then one of the there you go. That's a good one. <laughs> and then one of the scientists in the front row under his breath mumbled, yes, and they're all the same size. <laughs> so that was my, uh, the one time the visualization exercise didn't work. Um, but also allow your visual imagery to then shift over into another sensory mode. So for some people, hearing music is more powerful than visual imagery. Other people, it's a smell. Other people, it's a sound or a sight or a touch or a feel. And let all your senses become involved or shift senses. So when you're thinking about something that's relaxing and you can't quite visualize something, but you hear a piece of music or a prayer or a mantra, focus on that. So don't get bogged down in thinking, oh my God, I've got to see visual imagery in order for my meditation or stress management technique to work. Not at all. Pick whatever sensory modality you operate in, focus on that, learn to meditate using that as your, your focus, and it will work. Well, it's 
I, I really love the advice. And I think it's sometimes the simple things that authors say that really help people. And it doesn't have to be that complicated. I think we try and make it more complicated than it actually is. You know, and in your concluding chapter, and this is the last question to kind of wrap up our interview here about mind as healer, mind as slayer, uh, you speak about approaching the treatments of a patient in a holistic manner. And there are a lot of elements for people to consider in looking at their life from their physical, their mental, their emotional, and their spiritual side. If you were advising somebody, what approach would you tell them or advise them to being evaluated in all of these specific disciplines, right? It's kind of like, well, there's a psychiatrist, and then there's the doctor, and there's a psychologist, and then there's the pastor or the or the rabbi or the person that could give me advice here. If you were going to try and, you know, pull out that together, how would you pull those pieces together and give somebody some sound advice? That's a real challenge. I know physician friends that when they have a relative or a friend, they're helping to guide through the medical system. It's a morass. It's, it's really extremely difficult to understand the diagnostics, how uh, subspecialists relate to generalists. So my best advice is to start, literally start where you start. Pick the person that you think is the first best option for you. It may be a minister, maybe a chiropractor, maybe an acupuncturist, maybe a nurse, maybe a yoga practitioner. But the, the most important thing is to take that first step. Lao Tzu said the journey of a thousand miles begins with one step. And that's what mm -hmm. we need to do. We need to make one committed step that says, I need help. I need your help to work with me to move forward and start. And that will lead you inevitably, if you stay focused on your internal needs, your internal directive, it will tell you, okay, you're through with exercise, time to move on to nutrition. You're finished with nutrition, time to move on to your physical environment. Whatever the path is that takes you, you will find the right practitioner. So it's not a matter of title or degrees or geographic location. It really starts with that very first question, which is, what do I think I really need as a first step? I'm willing to commit to that and take that step. And that's the first thing that begins your journey of a thousand miles to health and healing. Well, it has definitely been uh, a very, very informative uh, discussion. And I appreciate you spending the time speaking with us about this book. And for my listeners, if you go up to Amazon, Mind is Healer, Mind is Slayer is still there, uh, paperback, new and used. Uh, you can get the book. It has had many different covers over the years. Um, I'm looking at it right now, and it's ranging in price uh, from $35.98 down to $7.22. So obviously, you're going to buy the, the least expensive one there is. But the copies are still out there. Um, and for all of you, I would say, hey, look, this book's in, been in circulation. Uh, do you know how many copies this thing's actually sold? It was number one bestseller. I mean, oh, it's in over 100 years. And in about 14 or 15 languages, it, it was a, a, an astounding a success. And I still get royalties. So I know it's still still selling. I'm always, I am amazed, quite honestly. There you go. So. Well, we've been on this morning uh, with Dr. Kenneth R. Peltier, 
And we've been speaking about Mind is Healer, Mind is Slayer. I will put links to Amazon for everybody, also links to Dr. Peltier's uh, website as well. Um, uh, Kenneth, we've really enjoyed having you on. We've enjoyed having you as a guest on Inside Personal Growth and giving our listeners just a little bit more knowledge and expertise about how they can approach the whole mind, body, spirit element of healing uh, their lives. Thanks so much for being on. Thank you again for your invitation. I really enjoyed it. 